This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can listen to brand new episodes every Thursday. Just make sure to subscribe. This week at the start of a new school year in England, we'll look at education in the Middle Ages. And leading our class today is senior properties historian Dr Michael Carter. It's a real pleasure to be back and it's that time of year again, isn't it? It's been heralded for the last couple of weeks back to school and um, I'm sure so many listeners will remember this from childhood. Was it feelings of anticipation, dread or a mixture of both? I hope in our conversation I'll give some insights into what schooling was like for children and adolescents in the Middle Ages. And I'll bet some listeners are going to recognise some common features from their own school days, but how radically different things were too. Absolutely. It's um, those three words that sort of conjure up feelings of potential dread for some children. And I suppose others are quite keen to get back to school and learning and back amongst their school friends again. But um, let's go back in time and situate ourselves. So we're talking about the medieval period When does that start exactly? Because one tends to think about stone castles, knights on horseback, these sorts of things. But actually, the early medieval period looks rather different, doesn't it? Wow, what a first question. And in fact, we could spend a whole podcast talking about how to define the Middle Ages culturally and chronologically. But for the purposes of today, I'm going to be talking about quite a broad sweep of history essentially from the late 6th century, and that's the arrival of missionaries to convert the Anglo-Saxon peoples in what's now England to Christianity. And I'll be going right through to around about 1540, the reign of Henry VIII, the dissolution of the monasteries, the start of uh, the English Reformation, which is a real fissure in English history, a real departure point for a new age and end of another. What do we mean then by schools in the Middle Ages? Do they resemble modern schools in any ways? Well, we're going to be talking an awful lot about Latin in this podcast. So I think it's quite appropriate to say that the word school comes from the Latin scola. And I think it ultimately has a, has a Greek origin. Then as now, the word school or schools had various meanings. And these include the senses which I'll be using throughout this podcast. That's a class of children or adolescents, boys and girls, but with much more evidence for the former, I have to say, receiving instruction from a teacher and also the building in which this teaching took place. Now, again, we could have another podcast on schools in the sense of it meaning a place of advanced study, especially the universities. Did medieval schools resemble the ones we're all familiar with? Well, I think there are some common strands. Education took place between the ages of around four or five to mid to late teens, and there was an elementary and a secondary phase to it. There were professional teachers, and some of them did indeed have university degrees. There was a structured curriculum. There was definitely an academic year, and it started, it seems, in autumn. And there were three or four terms, and these were punctuated by holidays. So there are already some common strands there. But there were also some very, very big differences. And I think that will become apparent as I'm talking over the next 45 minutes or hour or so. 
When were the first schools established in medieval England? Who were they for as well? Well, I'm going to start by asking myself a question that I really don't know the answer to. Did some sort of schooling survive the end of Roman rule in the western bits of what's now England? I honestly don't know. But these areas were predominantly Christian, and Christianity is a religion of the book, so it requires literacy. Also, Latin was a common language for it, so you had to have some instruction in that. We have evidence from places like uh, Tintagel, of course, an English heritage site, of enduring literacy after the cessation of Roman administration here in the early 5th century, and that there was also enduring contact with the Mediterranean world. But we're on much firmer ground when it comes to the missions to evangelise or convert the Anglo-Saxons. Schools at various levels were a feature of the monasteries which were to spearhead these efforts of conversion. And from our sources such as Bede, we know of schools at several early Anglo-Saxon monasteries that are now looked, uh, looked after by English heritage, Lindisfarne, Whitby and Canterbury. And within their precincts, boys and young men were instructed to be the next generation of monks, missionaries and bishops. There was also some evidence for the instruction of girls, especially, for instance, at the Jewel Monastery of Whitby. Now, the pupils of these schools were to include some of the great saints of Anglo-Saxon England. And they played a huge role in the shaping of, of history of these lands in their own time. And their influence still resonates to this very day. Something you just said there, Michael, reminds me of the fact that obviously we have an international audience here on the English Heritage Podcast, and you've described the children as pupils, P-U-P-I-L-S, a bit like pupils of an eye. But of course, that's a word that I don't think that, I don't think it's used in North America. It's more students. But um, I think that's interesting, isn't it? Um, that How even in the uh, lexicon of education, there are different words for the children who attend school. Can you tell us more about this school at Canterbury then? Was it related to the priesthood or was it a bit more wide-ranging, the education there? Well, its origins go back to the arrival of St Augustine with his companions from Rome in 597, their settlement in in Canterbury, the foundation there of the monastery of St Peter and St Paul, later St Augustine's Abbey. It really flourished in the 7th century, and it would achieve international fame and significance under the leadership of Abbot Hadrian and Archbishop Theodore. Now, these men were refugees of Mediterranean origin, and let's not forget that the Mediterranean was the cradle of Christianity. And in the 7th century, it was what some historians would call the late antique. It was in a process of transformation from the ancient world to the medieval world. Now, Hadrian was from North Africa and Theodore was from Asia Minor. They were forced to flee their homelands due to invasion and warfare, and they made for Italy. Here they came to the attention of the Pope, who sent them to Canterbury. Bede, the great historian of the Anglo-Saxon church, speaks in the highest terms of their school at Canterbury, saying that it attracted a large number of students into whose minds they poured wholesome knowledge. The curriculum at the school included scripture, poetry, 
astronomy and calendar computistics. That was a real hot topic in the Anglo-Saxon church, how to calculate the true date of Easter. The school pioneered the teaching of Greek in Anglo-Saxon England, and that would have been opened up a rich seam of scholarship and knowledge to the nascent English church. And Hadrian made his own distinct contributions too, where we get gleanings of this from the writings of other Anglo-Saxons. He was lauded as a respected father and revered teacher for his ineffability and his urbanity. And the school at Canterbury also pioneered the use of music in Christian worship here in England. So there are a few elements there to the school in Canterbury, which is in Kent in southeast England, which people would recognise today, effectively, in the types of lessons on offer. Yeah, and I think also as well, this is one of the instances where we have to kind of tease out what's meant by school as well. And I think the praise of the school is a school that was providing both a kind of elementary and secondary education, but also advanced study as well. That the, for want of a better word, graduates of the school went on to occupy very high positions indeed in the church. So I think that we're talking about people who are also receiving instruction in adulthood. Ah, very interesting. Yeah, and I I think as well, we're we're talking about more advanced study. So it's like, you know, the use of the word university would be very, very anachronistic at at this time. But I do think we are talking about that next stage. It's taking your your study through to the next level. And as I said, I think we could have a, a whole podcast on the history of universities. Definitely. As for the monasteries, though, they obviously played a role in education. What role did monks and monasteries particularly play? Well, it's interesting as well. I think that, you know, monks are readily associated and and nuns as well, it must be said, in, in the popular imagination with learning and erudition and reading, and rightly so. And they played a very significant role indeed in education in the Middle Ages. And I'd say they were probably the leading provider of education until, gosh, you know, well after the Norman Conquest in 1066. Now, I've already hinted at this in the Anglo-Saxon context. And children within monasteries received education for two main reasons. The first of these was because they were destined for the monastic life. They were going to become monks or nuns. They'd be brought up as sometimes as child oblates. They were given by their posh parents as gifts to the church. And they'd be brought up within the cloister. The rule of St. Benedict, which was to become the dominant form of monastic life in in the Western Europe, even makes provision for this. Uh, The care was entrusted to the master of children. Their education would pass through various stages, and they wouldn't be taking their monastic vows until their mid-late teens when they had a substantial elementary and secondary education. And these vows had, in theory at least, to be taken freely. Now, adolescents and young men would enter monasteries as novices. In theory, they should already have been literate. That's to say, capable of reading and understanding basic Latin so they could perform the liturgy. Of course, the liturgy was performed in Latin. But they would often need further instruction too. Now, there were also monastic schools intended for boys and in some nunneries, girls as well. 
But the people who studied there, the young people who studied there, weren't necessarily going to take the cowl and enter the cloister. Now, these were song and grammar schools. Now, the song schools, these were the ones that provided an elementary education. That's how to read and how to sing plain song. It was how to recognise letters and how to recognise words. You wouldn't necessarily have been schooled at that point how to understand Latin. And as I said, the song school, it was how to sing plain song. That was uh, what's today popularly known as Gregorian chant. And the grammar schools phase would give you the understanding of Latin. Now, these schools are very much a characteristic of post-conquest monasticism, especially between the 13th and 16th centuries. Now, we know of their existence from several sites now cared for by English heritage, Bury St Edmunds, Furness, Gisborough, and also I think it's important to mention Denny Abbey, and that was occupied by three different orders over the course of the Middle Ages, Benedictine monks, then Knights Templar, and finally Franciscan nuns, or as they were also known, Poor Clares. And there was a school at Denny where um, the daughters of local elites would be sent to acquire a little bit of polish and a little bit of learning. And these girls weren't necessarily intended to become nuns afterwards. And in actual fact, the more you look for evidence at school at medieval monasteries, the more that you're going to find. Um, for instance, uh, several of our monasteries, for instance, Muchelney in Somerset or Cleve, also in Somerset, actually, or Byland Abbey up in Yorkshire, we know that there were boy choristers there in the late Middle Ages, and they would have had to have received some instruction. So they were probably a schoolmaster at those schools, to be teaching them the very basics in Latin grammar and also how to sing the services. Did um, monasteries have a monopoly on education then in the Middle Ages, or could you get education from other places? They were very important providers of education, but they, 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 it was far from being a monopoly. And that's the case even before the Norman Conquest in 1066. Elite households were also places of education, but just what that consisted of would have changed over the centuries. Now, it was common practice for the sons and daughters of the well-off to be sent to the households of other elite families, sometimes at a very, very tender age, as young as seven. There they'd be instructed or schooled in manners and deportment. You know, what made you a gentleman or a gentlewoman? What was expected of your class? And there would also have been some instruction in perhaps the basics of literacy. But for boys, a lot of it was how to fight as well. That was a very, very important marker of your elite status. Looking at the church, parish churches, especially after the conquest, often had schools. These might have been quite informal. And it was an acknowledged responsibility of parish priests to provide some kind of education as required. And, and often they would act as kind of like masters for an apprentice who was destined for the church. There were numerous schools which were purposefully founded. They were an expression of Christian piety. And as we'll see later, some of these foundations are still with us today. Schools were sometimes established by civic authorities. And there was also private enterprise, school teachers setting up schools of their own. And by their very nature, they're not very well documented and some could be very short-lived. But... 
Just to wrap up, I think monasteries, it should be said, continue to be major providers of education until right up to the time of the dissolution of the monasteries. I think it's also important to mention that a lot of this monastic education was free. At least it didn't charge any. You know, we'll get to other costs involved in a medieval education. But, you know, the charitable principles of the church meant that a lot of the education provided by medieval schools at various levels and by various providers was intended to be free. From what you've been describing, Michael, across the range of education on offer in England in the medieval period, which is, well, I guess it's more than a thousand years, isn't it? It's um, Pushing a thousand years, yeah. Yeah, about a thousand years since the Romans officially leave Britain. Education can be found in monasteries, in private homes, in the wealthy elite. And are there any other areas? Yeah, proper school foundations, what we would recognise as schools. And by the late Middle Ages, as we'll be talking, there were school buildings and school rooms. There were ones that you know, we, we were called, some of them were called free schools, a lot were called grammar schools, and some very famous schools indeed that have survived to this day have medieval origins. Right. And can we put a figure on how many schools there were during the Middle Ages in England? Obviously, I suppose some come and go, don't they, over that very long period of perhaps more than a millennium. But um... Exactly, yeah. We know of several hundred, but there were probably many, many more that still await discovery or that just haven't left any evidence and it remains, schooling in the Middle Ages remains a very vibrant area of research. I bet, yeah. It's, um, learning about school is um, a strange thing in a way, but it's part of history, isn't it? And it's actually an important part of education history for anyone who's studying to be a teacher, I suppose. Did both boys and girls go to the same schools or was education for them separate? Well, both boys and girls did go to school. Yes, I've already hinted at that. There were more opportunities for boys to be educated, and I think that reflected the nature of medieval society, indeed society generally in the West until relatively modern times. Now, nunneries were the main provider of education for girls, and these were the daughters of the well-off, nobles, gentries, merchants. There are some hints of private schools for the education of girls, uh, Several women had the surname schoolmistress uh, documented, in, for instance, in 14th century London. But we don't really know anything about the operation of these schools. Now, nunneries took in children from a very young age. I mean, was it childcare or was it education? And of course, the two do overlap. And that included both boys and girls. But for the most part, boys and girls were strictly segregated. And indeed, even when I was growing up, the providers of secondary education, uh, my local authority, for the most part, there were boys' schools and there were girls' schools. Would every child in England in the Middle Ages have had access to education or was it more something that was for richer families, people connected to the priesthood, that sort of thing? Only a small minority of children in medieval England received any formal schooling. Now, there were places that provided that was, in theory at least, a free education. That's to say an education without fees being charged. And this was seen as being fulfilling an obligation of Christian charity. And they were purposefully founded 
so that the teachers, the priests attached to it, the pupils would say prayers in commemoration of the benefactor for the salvation of the soul of their benefactor. Now, these free schools included monastic armory schools, that's to say schools established by monasteries as part of their obligation to provide arms or relief to the poor. In theory, admission to a free school was open to anybody that was born free, that's to say not a serf. But your parents had to be able to spare you, clothe you, feed you. And to go to that school then as now, a free education would have involved some costs. Sometimes a registration fee was charged, and it doesn't sound much like um, four four pence, two pence, but that's tens, if not hundreds of pounds in today's money. You had to have something decent to wear. Think of school uniform costs today. And certainly towards the end of the the period we're looking at, you also had to be supplying various implements necessary for study. Now, you also had to live close enough to walk to and from school every day. Education stops being free when you've got to travel there. There were boarding schools in the Middle Ages, and we'll be talking about some of those later. Now, some schools were purposefully established to provide education for the more socially elite. There was Dean Collett's school in London, for example, seems from the outset to have been targeted better off Londoners. And I think there was one free um, scholarship place, and that boy was responsible for waiting on his fellow pupils or students, and also removing the urine from the communal privy. I don't think, it, you know, it was, you know, it gives you an idea of how lower the status of that free place was. And also you think about, you know, Eton and Winchester, late 14th and 15th century foundations, respectively. And they were founded for the education of, it came to be 70 poor scholars each. But you get the medieval equivalent of pushy parents very, very quickly finding that these free education places are worth having, that you find places going to people who are distant related or descended from the founder, the administrators of the endowment. And places like Eton and Winchester are very, very rapidly also taking what are called commoners. That's boys who go to the school with the payment of a fee. But having said that, free education, especially that provided by monastic schools, provided real opportunities for social mobility in the Middle Ages. And this was a time of rigid stratification and very, very little chance of movement out of the estate into which you were born. And some boys with very poor starts in life indeed were able to profit massively from this education. Several abbots and priors, even an archbishop of Canterbury, started life as armory boys, in some instances little more than street urchins, taken off the streets in an act of Christian charity and put in the school to be brought up. And we also know of well, less dramatic social mobility, but you know, people, as a virtue of their education, their free education at these schools, being able to attain a post as a steward in somebody's household or a 
administrator of a monastic estate. And that really did represent a massive change in status. And the schools were giving people a really big leg up in life. In some respects, things haven't really changed. People see the benefit of education and want to get their children into the best school possible. As for the teaching, who did the teaching? Um, I suppose in monasteries, it was someone connected to the building. Yeah, I mean, monks and nuns definitely had teaching responsibilities in some instances, especially for the child oblates I was talking about and for novices. But there were also professional school teachers, and they probably did the majority of the teaching, even within monastic context. And a term which some of the older listeners might be familiar with, school masters, was a term with medieval origins. And the word master gives you an idea of the status and education of these teachers. They were university graduates, and they would have held the degree of Master of Arts. And it's worth remembering that there were only two universities in medieval England, that's Oxford and Cambridge, and only a tiny proportion of the population went to university. So the fact that people, that university graduates were going into teaching says something about the role. Indeed, the, the statutes of many medieval schools specify that the schoolmaster had to be a graduate. Now, it took seven years to earn the degree of MA. So men with that degree, and it really was just men at this time, were often thin on the ground. The degree of BA was introduced to increase the number of graduates to fill roles, not just in teaching, but across the church and elsewhere where where a degree was necessary. Well, it's just the church and law, really, and teaching. And there was also a short-lived degree called Master of Grammar, and that's fallen out of use. Now, most schools would have just had a single master. They were sometimes assisted by what was called an usher. And I mean, I was was trying to find the best sort of analogy for this. And I sort of settled on teaching assistant. But that's not quite right, as these ushers often would also have possessed a university degree and were aspiring masters looking for uh, an appointment somewhere. Fascinating. So um, just to people leading or taking part in a class fundamentally. That obviously leads on to a question about the ages of the children in the class, but we'll come on to that one, Michael. Um, Where did the teaching take place? Obviously, there's a building in which uh, the children go. I guess it also varies, doesn't it, depending on what type of school we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, we tend to think of, you know, a discrete school building set aside for education. And and as I explained, there certainly were those. But Instruction took place in a variety of settings. Oblates and novices at monasteries were usually instructed in one of the cloister alleys. They're the covered walkways that go around the square open garden in the middle of the complex around which the main monastic buildings are arranged. And it it came to be common practice for the west alley of the cloister to be used for instruction. Almondry schools were often provided with their own building For instance, at Durham, there was what's described as a loft near one of the gatehouses that provided access to the priory's precincts. Instruction actually took place within churches as well. For instance, at Kirkham Priory in Yorkshire, it's another English heritage site, there's a description of tuition taking place on the steps of the font, uh, where 
children were baptized. And we know of this because of uh, someone reminiscing later on in their life about basically being sat there, being bored and taking pot shots at the cover that went over the font. Rooms, rooms above the porches of parish churches seem to have been used as schools. So too screened off chapels within parish churches. But certainly by the late Middle Ages, uh, let's say from the 14th century onwards, if not earlier, there were also specially built schools and school rooms. These were often like churches oriented east-west and the teacher sat at the east end. The pupils would have been arranged on stone benches around the edges or would have sat on wooden benches or forms. Actually, that's a term that was still used in northern England when I was a little boy to describe a bench, a form. And also some of your listeners, especially those of sort of my age, uh, you know, I'm in my 50s or and older, will recognise the word form. I recognise right. the, the word form as well because it was used at my school. Absolutely. And you would sit on your form to be graded to age or ability and six became standard and that is the origin of the structure of six forms or year groups that pertained in English secondary schools until very recently I think. Or grades I think if you're in North America so yeah that would be yeah. You're graded in your form but I suppose you're formed in your grade in, <laughs> in, in uh, North America, perhaps. I'm not quite sure. That's interesting. Yes. Um, another sort of aspect of the lexicon of education there and how it sort of changes uh, depending on where you are on the planet. What did the curriculum consist of? I've just been mentioning geography, obviously. Um, <laughs> but um, what other subjects? Right. Well, elementary education. So that's early years from about, let's say about the age of seven. That was seen as being the transition between infancy and childhood to about the age of 10. Well, that was given over to learning your ABC, then how to read. And you'd be learning to read Latin. You wouldn't necessarily be taught how to understand Latin and also how to sing plain song or Gregorian chant, as it's commonly known. Now, there was an awful lot of learning by heart. Now, the next stage of education, uh, that's what we might call a secondary education, that was from about the age of 10 and lasted perhaps five or six years. And there was an awful lot of instruction in Latin grammar. That's learning how Latin was constructed, how to understand the language. This was done by using books known as grammars, as such as that by Aelius Donatus, a late Roman grammarian. And also you'd use books called Vulgaria, which were kind of Latin textbooks, and you'd be given a phrase to translate into Latin, and you'd have to do that perfectly using all the correct um, uh, grammatical structures, and you'd have to construe the sentence that's explained its various components. And um, some of it was like, you know, very, very pious little phrases, but some of it was actually quite humorous. And uh, some of it was far, far too naughty to talk about on this podcast too. So there's a little bit of humor was used in education, even in the Middle Ages. So you'd learn how to read Latin. You'd learn how to construct sentences. You'd learn how to write elegant Latin. 
it was a curriculum, to be honest, that would have been very familiar to people attending English grammar schools right down to the mid-19th century, where fluency and an ability to understand Latin was at the very, very core of the curriculum. Now, pupils would have read various Latin texts, for instance, uh, the, something called the Distichs of Cato were uh, a staple of medieval schooling throughout the centuries. And these were prized not only for the purity of the Latin, but also for their moral guidance. And that leads us on to then also another basic text in medieval education, which was the Book of Psalms, which indeed formed the backbone of the medieval daily liturgy. This idea of Latin then, were most of your classes conducted in Latin, effectively a foreign tongue? No, it would have been, well, actually, it depended where you were or which form you were sat on, you could say. You progressed through. Uh, to start off with, there would have been an awful lot of English used in tuition as well. And also, there's evidence, there is some evidence as well of the teaching of French. And as you progressed through your schooling, the amount of English used in schooling would diminish. And once you got to quite an advanced level, your tuition would probably be exclusively in Latin. Now, French was also used as well. You know, England, English was considered very much of the vulgar tongue. It was not a language in which you needed to have any kind of scholarly proficiency. It changes from the 14th century onwards. And French gradually gets supplanted. And then it, French is used because it's, it's a useful, you know, you learn French then because it's a useful language to have. And it's, it's also showing a little bit of polish as well. You know, it's marking you out as being a learned rather than a lewd fellow. But what marked you out most of all as being learned was your command of Latin. So it's almost as if with the invasion of the Normans and also the previous invasion of the Romans, those become the sort of languages to want to speak, to emulate, to emulate the people who have um, taken control. It's quite interesting, that. Well, I mean, well, Latin's the, it's a universal language in the Middle Ages. It's the language of the church, and it's the language in which all scholarship is conducted. And if you can read and speak Latin, you can communicate with people across Christendom. It really is, the, you know, to, to use a slightly anachronistic phrase, it's the it's a lingua franca of the Middle Ages. And then French, you know, there is a kind of thing of it being a socially elite language, but also, again, it's a widely understood language. I mean, English has that status now today. You know, people around the world learn English. It's become the standard language for medicine, business, you know, and things like aviation as well rely on a common language, and that's come to be English. And very much Latin was the common language in the Middle Ages. And actually, it's interesting you know, how much Latin did the average punter on the street understand in the Middle Ages. That's a really interesting question. And it's likely that some kind of understanding of Latin was quite broadly spread in the Middle Ages, and that literacy, some kind of basic literacy, might have been more widespread than this sometime acknowledged. And it wouldn't have been, gosh, I could look at a Latin charter and translate it all, but you could grasp some of the basics, especially when it came to the medieval liturgy and perhaps some key legal texts, the use of Latin in some key legal texts as well. 
That's really interesting. That's another podcast for us, Michael, isn't it? Um, <laughs> we'll have to uh, pitch that one. Um, but um, I suppose there's the language of religion as well itself. You know, it's spoken through Latin. It was a vehicle for edu- education, religion, wasn't it, during the Middle Ages? Or was it just one aspect of education? Well, let's think that, you know, Latin remained the language of the Catholic liturgy, universal Catholic liturgy, until the 1960s. And, you know, that shows its deep, deep, deep historical importance. And also, as I said, it was at the basics of, you know, why are grammar schools called grammar schools? It's because you were instructed in Latin grammar at them. It was fundamental for education, way beyond the Middle Ages. And what about religion, the role of religion in medieval education? Well, I have to say it was at its core. The church was the principal provider of education. People were motivated by Christian piety to found and fund schools, and it underpinned instruction within them. As I said, it was so important to give people Latin literacy. That's what you'd have to come out of school equipped with. But also at school, you might pick up practical skills. Well, you would actually pick up practicals. There's no two ways about it. A practiced hand for writing a charter, keeping records, highly esteemed. And also, once you're getting into kind of the, I'm hesitating to use this term, but a kind of further education, not it's going one step beyond what you would be learning in grammar school. You might be equipped with some basic legal knowledge or accountancy skills. And you'd also acquire at these schools a bit of polish. It was good manners, how to deport yourself. And, you know, people think about the Middle Ages, about, you know, wiping your nose on your sleeve and throwing a chicken leg over your shoulder. And quite frankly, that's a bit of nonsense. The good manners were highly esteemed in the Middle Ages. And that was one of the things that you would, because they, the discipline as we'll get to was so harsh in these schools that good behaviour and good deportment was taught to people at school. And especially kind of like the nunnery schools, which sometimes acted as a kind of finishing school for the ladies of local landed and mercantile elites of how to be a lady was very important. But there was also a concept in the Middle Ages that you had to know how to behave in polite company. You certainly had to know how to be a gentleman. You know, gentleman was more than having a coat of arms and a noble lineage. You had to behave in a certain way. You had to know the manners. You had to know the unwritten codes. And these unwritten codes existed for other grades of medieval society as well, and they would be taught to you at school. It was almost rather rather than have a formal lesson in this at the grammar and elementary schools. It was things you would pick up just as the way you were expected to deport yourself. So effectively, religion and the belief in God was, it was the foundation on, upon which everything was based. I, I think a foundation is a very good word as well, because you think about the founders of these schools as well. You know, these schools have founders and, you know, they are commemorated in, sometimes actually in the liturgy of, of, some, of, the, of, the, of the, some of the grander foundations. You know, the anniversary of the death of the founder would be commemorated and you would say prayers for the salvation of the soul of the founder. They had done a great act of Christian piety by founding the school. I'd like to understand a bit about how things worked in classes. Mm. From a practical perspective, were there school books and 
What did pupils write on? Yeah, there were school books, especially by the late Middle Ages. And we know of schoolmasters who often had quite sizable personal libraries, and that some schoolrooms were furnished with essential basic texts used for tuition. But books were expensive things, especially in the age of manuscript. That's things copied out on hand, often on very expensive vellum. Occasionally, schoolboys would have their own texts. We know of that from various bequests in wills, for example, or all the odd inscription left in a book. But widespread ownership of books by teachers and students or pupils alike didn't really come in until the age of print. Um, That's at the very end of the period we're looking at. But even then, books were quite expensive things. Now, writing was done on wooden boards, often covered with wax or or on slates. And uh, the surviving example of one of these can be seen at Battle Abbey in Sussex, an English heritage site. And I think that's probably 15th or early 16th century. Now, from the late 15th century onwards, you start to get paper, paper books, and several school books used by medieval schoolboys have survived to this day. And actually, when I was talking about elegant handwriting, the handwriting within them is really quite beautiful. So they, they, these boys had a practised hand. Yes, I can speak to that, actually. I used to have quite nice handwriting, but um, since becoming a touch typist... Uh, my handwriting now looks awful. I think it's a fairly common experience. I started writing out notes for this manuscript in hand, and I thought, when it comes to the day, I'm probably not going to be able to read this, so I'd better type it. So you just word process it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How long was the school day in the Middle Ages? Oh, very long indeed by our standards. We're talking about sort of 6 a.m. till 6 p.m more or less dawn till dusk in the lighter months of the year. But there were breaks for meals. There was a breakfast break and a midday break. And the endowments of um, free schools did make special provision for the provision of bread and ale to the pupils. And, and, you know, and actually, when I deliberately said bread and ale, because it would have been what's called a small beer, which is a very, very, very weak kind of beer, basically, to, to safer to drink. Boys, especially at monastic schools and in foundations, would often have to leave their lessons to go and sing their church services. And you know they would assist either as well the song schools and uh, choral schools. They would sing the Lady Mass, sometimes assist at High Mass, and then also act as assistants for priests performing masses as well. The school week was Monday to Saturday, and Saturday tuition was common at a lot of grammar schools in England well into the 20th century, and it may well still be the case at some private schools to this day, I don't know. But there were lots of holy days when you would get a half or a whole day off. Now, the school year consisted of three or four terms that were punctuated by vacations or holidays. There tended to be about two weeks at Christmas, about the same at Easter, and a much longer summer vacation. And the longer summer vacation was because of the importance of the harvest. Then, as now, the academic year started in the autumn, the Michaelmas term, and that's so-called because it starts close to the Feast of St. Michael, 
on the 29th of September, St. Michael's Mass, Michaelmas. And the terms lasted about 10 to 12 weeks. It's kind of the length of a university term today. Also worth mentioning um, on the vocabulary front, you've said term a few times there. I think um, some other people might refer to that as semesters. Um, oh, no, they were definitely terms. And I think there, there's yeah. a difference in meaning in between term and semester. But um, just another difference between our yeah. side of the pond and uh, the other. Many people might be conjuring up quite a rigid kind of education in the Middle Ages. Obviously, we're talking about several hundred years, perhaps even a thousand how would you describe the discipline applied and received during uh, the Middle Ages at school? There were definitely schoolmasters and perhaps schoolmistresses who led by example, who loved the subject, would have been communicated to their pupils under their care. But by our standards, discipline in medieval schools was extremely harsh. And I can remember as a little boy reading Tom Brown's School Days, sort of school in the 19th century, and it's sending a chill down my spine. And I think because of the discipline in it and medieval schools were that on steroids. Medieval schoolmasters are often depicted in illuminated manuscripts or woodcuts and they're shown clutching a raised birch. That's a bundle of rods. Now, this was a symbol of their status and authority, and the birch was used to administer beatings for breaches of discipline, forgetfulness, or just because you can't do the task you've been asked to do. And these beatings could be savage. For instance, the parishioners at what's now King's Lynn complained that the noise of boys crying and screaming because of the severity of the floggings they were undergoing was interrupting their church services. Now, a wooden strip with a hole at one end intended to raise a blister, I think it's called a ferule, was used as a punishment for less serious offences. Now, We need a little bit of context for this. This was an age where beatings were routine. Masters could beat their servants. Parents could beat their children. Husbands could beat their wives. And also a little bit of English recent history is necessary. Corporal punishment was permitted in English state schools until 1986. And it was only abolished in English private schools in 1998, and I think even later in other constituent countries of the United Kingdom. And I can remember being nothing short of terrified of a teacher at my primary school in the 1970s who was liberal in the use of the ruler to punish very minor offences. Let's talk about um, another disciplinarian, shall we say, Henry VIII and his split from the church in Rome. What did the impact of the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry have on education in in England from the mid-1500s? In one word, huge. Schools perished at monasteries along with their parent institutions. It's been estimated that as many as 5,000 free or heavily subsidised places at schools went with the monasteries. And um, at the nunneries, I think, you know, we haven't really talked much about this, partly because the evidence isn't quite as good as it is for education at male monasteries. 
But nunneries, it has been suggested by some scholars, were providing a standard of female education in England that wasn't seen again until the 18th century. High-minded ideals of reformers that monastic endowments should be directed to pious purposes such as education, well, that rarely lived up to reality. Some schools did survive. Indeed, some that were attached to the monastic cathedrals, they survived, even if they had to be refounded. Likewise, some monastic schools attached to the monasteries, which were re-established by Henry VIII as the centres of new dioceses. And also surviving, at least in the short term, were schools that were established to what are called chantries. These were foundations where masses were said for the salvation of somebody's soul. And these survived until late into the reign of Henry VIII, and some of them even to the reign of his son. And then, you know, as we'll talk about in a moment, I think, some other medieval schools with different kinds of endowments did indeed survive this assault on the monasteries and traditional religion in the mid-16th century. Right. So what are the names of those schools founded in the Middle Ages that survived all the way through the centuries, Henry VIII's um, dissolution and into today? Well, I mean, there are several dozen schools in existence in England today that can trace medieval foundations. Now, these are some of the schools associated with cathedrals, like Norwich School, the school attached to Canterbury Cathedral. Some scholars suggest there's a more or less continuous thread going right back to the time of St. Augustine. But there are also several state comprehensives that are continuing to do what their founders intended, which is to provide a free education. In some of the locations, they are providing an education and an opportunity for social mobility to some people living in very, very poor areas. But I think probably the most famous of the surviving medieval schools are Eton and Winchester. Obviously, Canterbury, the city of Canterbury in Kent in southeast England is, is one of those great places where you can get a lot of history just by walking around. So are there any, any other English heritage sites where you can get a, a sense of education in the medieval period? Well, in Canterbury, indeed. I mean, you know, the, the bit of the site now in the care of English heritage is the core monastic precinct. But adjoining it, it isn't an English heritage portion of the site. There is indeed, uh, is indeed occupied by a school to this day. But to be honest, I think if you go to most medieval English heritage sites, and I don't just mean the monasteries, I think you'll be visiting somewhere where some kind of teaching may well have taken place. So not just the monasteries, but also castles and manors. And I do think that this history of schooling is a major reason why I feel such a close emotional connection with so many of these sites. And that's especially the case for my specialism, the monasteries. I think it was schoolboy visits to places like Revo that stirred my imagination and set me on the path to where I am today. And I do think it's important that we mention, I mean, listeners might not be aware of this, that English Heritage has a very, very important schools programme, a very important education programme that does provide an opportunity for school children to visit our sites, learn about our sites. And importantly, these visits are free. 
And for some children, this will be the only opportunity because of wearing the charity's sites are situated often in quite remote rural locations. You can't really reach them unless you have your own car and admission charges. It's a way for children who wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity to visit our sites to get there for free and to learn about them and hopefully to stir their imaginations and who knows where that could take them. It certainly took me to various universities, higher degree, fellowship of various learners institutions and this job in English heritage. So you could say that the schooling provided at Revo Abbey, even if it was only a school trip one day, was fulfilling the mission of medieval monasteries to provide education and inspiration to people from not very well off backgrounds, social mobility, and a fulfilling life in a profession. Yes, it's a really special service, that one offered by English Heritage, the site visits for schools. And um, in fact, having recorded episodes on location in the past, there have been schools visiting whilst I was recording Beeston Castle in Cheshire, for example, a school was visiting on that particular day, and also at Revo Abbey in North Yorkshire, as you were describing. So um, not just you, Michael, lots of children have been following in your footsteps since, (laughs) so to speak. Broadly speaking, though, there's evidence of history of education all over England. It's castles, monasteries could be even in somebody's house yeah the medieval manners as well it really is but just thinking about the monasteries you know geographical spread it's from lindisfarne up there in northumbria to battle not far from the sussex coast you will see evidence of education at so many of our english heritage sites and you'll be able to stand on the site where that education was taking place Do educational books or artefacts from the Middle Ages survive today that people can see at English heritage sites or maybe even in in museums? One of the joys of my job is getting up close and personal with artefacts from the past. Medieval manuscripts, especially service books, are often full of doodles and pen trials made by people learning to read or read and write and perhaps bored monks in the cloister. And they survive from a number of our of our monasteries. And um, I often do look at the end pages and margins of a manuscript before I look at anything else to see what's being jotted down, to look at how practiced the hand is, to see the ABC that has been practiced down the side of a margin. You can also see writing implements, which may well have been used by young scholars at very many of our sites. Um, One of my very favourite artefacts from an English heritage site is, I mentioned it in passing, as a broken slate from Battle Abbey. And it's inscribed with musical notation, probably used when teaching an almondry boy or a young chorister how to sing the liturgy. I think it's a very poetry of history. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we take a sensory journey through some historic gardens. This cascade is at once visual, but it also has this lovely sound that comes out of it. One visitor who wrote about his experience here said it It was a a musical waterfall which really sets the tone of the place. Thanks for listening. See you next time.